Hey, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got another exciting episode with Alien Eye Minerals, Caribbean Minerals, Star Minerals, Aluminum, and so much more. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand and hills and rings. First thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name, felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks, cause radical rocks are everywhere. That's right, radical rocks are everywhere. In fact, we're going to be looking all around the globe and even on Mars for some radical rocks in today's exciting episode. Thank you everyone for subscribing and liking on all our different social media. Um, We're on most of uh, social media sites and also our YouTube channel where you just look up radical rocks and we'll pop up all over. So let's get right into it today. Um... Got a lot of uh, subjects that we haven't even talked about, so there'll be some surprise subjects. Salt caverns and minerals across Australia unlock our nation's hydrogen energy. And uh, you know what? If I don't turn the volume down, something else is going to pop up. So let me turn that down. So these salt caverns that uh, are in Australia are very unusual. We're told about this uh, at... The Hone Magdalene King MP, Minister for Resources and and Minister for Northern Australia at uh, minister.industry.gov.au. You can read about these salt caverns. They're uh, all across Australia, and they feel that this is a really big deal. Um, They have a couple things that help them with with hydrogen, they have these caverns, these salt caverns, where they're going to be able to store all this hydrogen on their own in their own country. And then apparently, uh, this will provide the same amount of energy as one of their major hydro um, areas called the Snowy Hydro 2.0. So they have a lot of different hydrogen. Potentials there. Hydrogen is a clean fuel, cost efficient, they say. And because of the minerals found in the deposit, these are essential for generating hydrogen. Some of these things uh, that they use are platinum, platinum, nickel, copper, cobalt, and gold, which are also in this area. They've got $225 million going into the Exploring for the Future program to find out uh, some of this stuff to get this uh, hydrogen program going. Hydrogen is a wonderful, uh, if you can get it cheap enough, it is wonderful and will produce a lot of energy for them. Our friends at Rock and Jim tell us about caronotite, which is a yellowish mineral It says uh, many of its uses are unexplored. If you go to rock, the letter N, gym.com, caronotite, if I'm saying that right, I think I am, 
Caro Noctite. It is uh, kind of a sandstone looking mineral, not uh, looking too spectacular, but it has this yellow look to it and it has a lot of different properties to it. The richest areas uh, have been in canyon and mesa sandstone formations in western Colorado and eastern Utah in the United States, and they have traces of uranium. So where there's areas of a lot of uranium-rich ground water, there can be an abundance of carbon-rich organic matter which can precipitate the uranium from the solution in these rich deposits of keronotite. Keronotite. Now, when you look at keronotite, you will see that uh, it was discovered in about 1899, and um, prospectors saw that and uh, were mining it. A little bit. Radium in by 1900, the Colorado Utah Caronotite ores were providing most of the world's radium. Radium is extremely rare and costs about $128,000, and that was way back then in 1900 per gram. That's about $3.3 million in today's dollars. By 1920, Colorado, Utah miners had recovered about 250 grams of radium, only 9 ounces, from 100,000 tons of high-grade coronite tight ore. And um, so now they find a lot of the ores in the Dominican Republic of the Congo, which has taken over the radium market as of now. Nevertheless, it uh, was continually mined in Colorado and Utah, and it increased. And then also these areas became a source of vandium, uh, a hard silvery white metal that enhances the durability of steel, most famously used in Henry Ford's Model A automobiles. So these old carnotite, carnotite, waste dumps were looked over and picked over for these new minerals. By the 1930s, there was more than 200 Colorado, Utah mines shipping carnotite ore to six Vandium mills. Now, by 1947, this mineral was used in World War II, uh, after World War II quite a bit for nuclear weapons. The Atomic Energy Commission wanted to find as much of this as they could. And it became uh, more valuable than gold in a lot of ways. And there was actually a jackpot um, payment from the government for this. There was mining subsidies. Some of the biggest finds of this uh, Carnotite was found in petrified tree trunks. They were called Carnotite trees they were tree trunks within sandstone, and they had precipitated a remarkably rich concentration of carnotite, and it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for some of these trunks to be more than 50% carnotite by weight. Uh, by many tons, some were worth more than $100,000 each, even back then. 
So in the 50s, there were some uh, subsidies or money that was to be paid by the United States government for people who found uranium. In fact, my great-grandfather had found a uranium mine in Kern uh, County, and the government took it away from him and never gave him a penny. But that's, just, that's another story. But they had uh, yielded through their mining subsidies in, to 1957, at the end of the rush, 4 million tons of ore, mostly carnotite, and about 200 tons of the uh, element uranium. So, pretty neat. Um, they talk about, the in this article, they talk about its chemical makeup. Uh, they mention of carnotite, that it is a secondary m- mineral that occurs bright yellow, incrustations and vein fillings it crystallizes but the crystals are rare and form only tiny grains carnotite carnonite has a mohs hardness of about two it's earthy to resinous in luster a very high specific gravity for what it what it is a 4.70 and best field marks which make it identifiable are the bright yellow color and it is also easily detected by uh, a Geiger counter because of its radioactivity. So this story previously appeared in uh, Rock and Jim magazine, and the story was by Steve Voynich. If you want to check that out, go to rockandjim.com. They have all kinds of articles that you can check out online for free. Next... Also in Rock and Jim is fascinating fluorite. Again, this is at uh, rockandjim.com. They talk about fluorite, and we know it comes in a lot of colors, every color of the rainbow. We've talked about it, but it can be used as a smelting flux. Uh, it was used by the Romans long ago to help with silver and lead ores and helps melting temperatures by removing the impurities into the slag or dross which is on the top and German workers used fluorite to to smelt and to purify these different metals so pretty neat it's also used for etching glass Uh, glass was thought to be impervious to all liquids until 1670 when a German glass worker mixed ground Fluspat, which is um, fluorite, basically, with sulfuric acid in a glass container, and the glass worker was astounded when the glass dissolved. So there was a new discovery there, and uh, it has been used to etch glass. The fluorine martyrus, it says uh, it's a it's a not isolated, but a mysterious element named in 1813. And it is very hazardous and uh, destructive and comes from the word fluorine, which is a Latin word, and fluorite containing compounds hydrofluoric acid. So that's, that's why it was uh, kind of a martyr. So it was of a fluorine family, but became you know, quite, quite dangerous. A lot of researchers lost their health or lives by inhaling or contacting the elements of fluorine or fluorine-based vapors and became known as the fluorine martyrs. 
So dangerous stuff. Um, a lot of other history about it. It was used for the A-bomb, uh, the atomic bomb, and it has a specific hardness of four, or excuse me, Mohs hardness of about four and specific gravity of 3.18. It has perfect four-directional cleavage, often occurs in hydrothermal veins, and is uh, often a sulfite ore of lead, zinc, and silver. Today, 7 million metric tons of fluorospar, the commercial term for impure fluorite, is mined in the year in the world each year. Half of it's converted to hydrofluoric acid, which is used in many chemical processes. The remainder is used to smelt steel and aluminum, and China produces about half. And the rest of it comes from Mexico, South Africa, and other areas are noted as important areas. This article, too, is credited by Steve Voynich, who tells us about this fluoride. Now, I want to talk about smithsonite, too. We'll come back to that. We want to talk about some Caribbean gemstones. Um, some prehistoric shark tooth was discovered by a young boy in central Alberta in his yard, Carrot Bartaco tells us about it at globalnews.ca and he discovered it right in his yard. There's a little video if you want to watch it. They believe it was 70 million years old. The boy was only seven years old and he has a picture of it in his tooth, in his hand there, the tooth. It's not real big. It's probably about the size of your, um, half your thumb maybe. But I guess it was a rare find and to find it in your yard like that has to be pretty cool. And he's certainly excited here in the pictures. So good for him. Let's see here. I don't want that. Impossible material was discovered on Mars. Rare material mineral found. Proof of more complex volcanic history. According to worldnationnews.com. We're told that uh, they drilled into this clay area. It looked like clay. Usually this mineral is found on Earth. It is a form of, um, of a silica or, or like a quartz almost. It, they were drilling and it left this grayish dust, a mineral that scientists never expected to see on Mars called tridomite. And tridomite is a, a high temperature, low pressure uh, associated with explosive eruptions. This type of quartz is rare on Earth. And they do not fully understand why it is seen here in the mudstones of Gale Crater. One of the most surprising things that they have seen in 10 years of rovers going all over Mars. But uh, it gives more proof to the scientists that uh, there was volcanic activity on Mars at one time. Now maybe you want to hear about the two foot tall alien eye mineral at the uh, Dallas Observer, dallasobserver.com, Caroline North tells us about this beautiful gemstone. It says the parrot, P-E-R-O-T, just acquired a rare two-foot-tall alien eye mineral named for its otherworld glow. Now, this is a huge quartz crystal 
with stacks of quartz crystals from smoky to clear and the actual terminated point crystal that spears up through the middle of all these clusters has a clear tip with smoky through the bottom and center of it and it has these stunning fluorite crystals in their uh, cubular Almost looks hexagonal, but the cubes are, are moving around as it formed. So quite spectacular. Um, the visitors to the Parrot Museum this week are among the first people in the world to lay eyes on a mineral that has a cult-like following from the mineral collecting community, according to a press release by the Museum of Nature and Science. They unveiled the Eyes of uh, Africa, looks like today, the world's largest and finest specimen of alien eye fluorite ever discovered. Eyes of Africa was found way back in 2007, but it took years and years of cleaning and getting it to the United States. There's a picture of the gentleman who found it. He insisted before it went into the museum here that he get a picture with it. And the picture of it, it looks quite drab. It doesn't look like anything spectacular. He found it about two years, ten years ago. The green is so intense, many liken their effect to something out of a science fiction movie. Um, the eyes of fluorites are black on the outsides with clearly defined emerald green diamond shapes in the center that seem to glow. Each color contained to the pocket of the Irongo region, and collectors of Nambian fluorites often seek out one of each. This pocket became known as the alien eye uh, pocket. And this baby is 22.8 inches tall, the, the, the quartz crystal. It's 13.3 inches wide and about 10.2 inches deep and weighs nearly 65 pounds. It is spectacular. American collectors um, Kiels, Beso, and Tron got wind of the discovery and uh, finally got a hold of it and brought it back. So if you want to check it out, there is just go to the DallasObserver.com and look up two-foot-tall alien eye mineral. It is wow. It's wild. It is wild. I almost lost my whole page here. How aluminum is made. Where does aluminum come from? Well, if you go to VisualCapitalist.com, you can find out uh, Govind Buta Butada Butada. There we go. Um, writes and tells us a little bit about aluminum. And if you want to go check that out, you can just go to visualcapitalist.com and see it. Where does aluminum come from? Well, first of all, they mine something, um, biaxite mining. It is a primary source of aluminum in a rock called biaxite. And then alumina uh, production is used by processing this biaxite into a alumina, uh, aluminia. And then the process of electrolysis, it is turned into aluminum. So it takes four to five tons of this mineral to get two tons of this alumin, aluminina, and then you get one ton of aluminum from that. 
and it's quite expensive uh, when they do this. You know, aluminum's used for everything from beer cans to airplane parts and all kinds of things in between. The world produces about 390 million tons of this Brexite rock, and 85% of it is used to make aluminum. And uh, it's pretty cool. Some of the areas that are biggest for mining, first is Australia, and then China, uh, and it goes on to Guinea, Brazil, India, Indonesia, Russia, Jamaica, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, and then the rest of the world makes up the small 4% of what is mined in the globe. Australia, again, is by far the biggest producer, home to the Wapai mine, the biggest rexite mining operation in the world. And then uh, Guinea has more than 7 billion tons of rexite reserves, more than any other country, and Guinea is a top producer with 70% of its Vexite imports going to China, even though they produce like half of it. So it sounds like they're making just about everything that's made out of aluminum. Um, first, the process for what is called the Bayer process, named after the chemist who found out the process for extracting aluminum, making aluminum. First is digestion. This uh, ore is mixed with sodium hydroxide, heated under pressure, and the sodium hydroxide selectively dissolves aluminum oxide from, from the ore, leaving behind other minerals and impurities. So then they filter it, uh, special, with a solution forming a residue known as red mud. After discarding the mud, aluminum oxide is converted into sodium aluminite. Then precipitation... The sodium aluminite solution is cooled and precipitated into a solid crystallized form of aluminum hydroxide. And then calcination, aluminum hydroxide crystals are washed and heated in calciners to form pure aluminum oxide, a sandy white material known as alumina. And then they can finally make it into the next process. Then, to do the aluminum, they take the aluma, alumini, alumina, 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 and they smelter it. They use hundreds of electrostatic reduction cells filled up with molten cryolite, Aluminite, composed of two aluminum atoms, three oxygen atoms, is dumped into these cells with a strong electrical current, breaks the chemical bond between aluminum and oxygen atoms. The electrolysis results in a liquid aluminum settling at the bottom of the cell, which is then purified and cast into various shapes and sizes. Crazy. They give more statistics about uh, aluminum production um, and then uh, so on and so forth. So a lot of it about a quarter of it's used in construction. 23% goes into vehicle frames, wires, wheels, and other parts of transportation industry. Aluminum foil, cans, and packing also make up a major end user with about 17% of the consumption. Aluminum is a market of about 
$245.7 billion. They project it will double to almost $500 billion by 2030. Wow, so now you know a little bit more about aluminum. Very interesting how it is made. Very uh, important for us to have it. Now here's an area we've read about quite a bit. The Lee Lanu Rock Hounding. This is Lee Lanu County. And this is, I wrote it down, this is in um, Michigan. And in Michigan, you can find some really beautiful rare stones. One of them is the uh, Patowski Stone, and, or the Leland Blues. So these are like, a, I guess you would say they're a, kind of a fossilized a coral that has a beautiful look to it and a beautiful design. And then the blues are uh, blue-colored stones that you can find. Now, they tell you what you need to hunt. Um, they give you buckets that are clear on the bottom that you can use to look through the streams to find these because that way it's easier to see. You don't have to stick your face into the water. And... Um, they give you tips to train your eye to look for the hexagonal or circular shapes on the stone. Certain pattern or shape of the Patowski commonly have is a way to, to track them and find them. Once you find one, it gets easier because you're training your eye to get them. All right? The blues are very rare and, um, and very collectible. So you want to try to find those. And then uh, it says, where, what are the best beaches to check? The favorite beaches are Christmas Cove, Peterson Park, Gills Pier, Leland Beaches. All give equal opportunity to collect the Patowski stones. And um, it said, Charles Voyux and Unikite, Horn Coral, and many others are found. In order to find the Leland Blues, though, you must go to Leland, North Beach, and Vans Beach, down to South Beach. And this uh, particular place will actually give you a map. They probably sell it. It is Northport Trading Posts. If you want to go to them, they have a Facebook page. You can check that out. They sell stones that are already polished if you don't find any. They have polishing classes that you can go to. $70 for one person, $120 for two. Very hands-on. They supply materials, Patowski pennant that they will make, and uh, usually end up walking out with two or three different projects. If you want to check that out, go to uh, L-E-E-L-A-N-A-U-T-I-C-K-E-R.com and check it out. Now, we talked about the Caribbean they have semi-precious stones. You might already know what this is at the recentlyherald.com by Roche Canon. You can see that the Caribbean semi-precious stones are Laramar, beautiful blue gemstone that looks like water, and Caymanite. And these were made under volcanism, uh, volcanic action in the remote area of the Dominic Republic and uh, causing 
these volcanic chimneys that were once uh, underwater caused minerals to crystallize and create these stones. Very unique properties. Uh, they're very hard and beautiful when you get a good specimen. Sometimes the stones reach the river's end at the beach. The polishing action reveals marbled sea blue green and white hues of Lermar that it is very prized for. Um, it says, it is likely that inhabitants came across the blue stones washed up on the beach more than a century ago and traced the origin up to the mountains. They started mining operations about 1960, or excuse me, 1916, and they've been doing it ever since. There's not a lot of it left. Um, 1974 was when it really became popular and caught on. And people are just going crazy. Some people call it blue jade. Quite beautiful. Copper is what gives it its blue-green color. Some stones contain red or gray shades. And sometimes it can be mistaken for turquoise or blue jade. Very beautiful. Caymanite is also restricted to a small area. It's found only in the Cayman Islands on the Grand Cayman East End on a bluff of Cayman Barak. And just like Laramar, volcanic activity formed this semi-precious stone. When the volcanic ash poured down on the rocks below, it formed sediments, and then they hardened into rocks, creating a type of dolomite. But the layers, colors are different. Each color varies, and in the polished stones, it creates colored stripes in earth tones of browns, yellows, and whites. And it's not super hard, but... Uh, it says cutting wheels and grinders need diamond tips in order to cut and polish it. So maybe it is hard. I didn't think it was that hard. But additional, in addition to jewelry pieces, Caymanite is fashioned into sculptures, business card holders, and inlaid even in tables. Its distribution is small, so it's seldom found outside the Cayman Islands. So if you're ever on a trip, that's, that's the rock you want to get. Well, huge sapphire cluster was discovered by accident. 2.5 million carats. 2.5 million carats. That is ginormous. Barbie uh, Latza Neju is the reporter. You can look at this, thedailybeast.com. She shows us some of it uh, being polished here or one like it. it says... A lucky gym trader with water problems made an extraordinary discovery when having the well drilled in his backyard in Sri Lanka. Workers found 2.5 million carat sapphire cluster weighing more than 1,000 pounds worth more than $100 million on the international market, according to the BBC. Largest known cluster of its kind ever discovered last year, certified as valuable. So we'll have to keep eye on that and see that thing comes on the market, it's pretty cool. Um, so we've got, I've got potentially one or two more articles. I was gonna tell you, ah, oh, here it is. I wanna tell you about a few really cool rocks and minerals that you might be interested in. At, at Christensen's Mineral Collection, you can go there, it's C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N. They send me out uh, emails all the time, some of the beautiful gemstones they have. They've got uh, copper uh, from the Fred Frederick Chinsingen mine. 
that's like alphabet soup there, the way they spelled it. And then we've got a beautiful, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a rhodonite or a rhodochrosite, but it is called Eryathite from the Azur Mine, the Boo Azur Mine in Morocco. And what this is, this is a pink mineral that is spraying out um, with these long uh, crystallized spheres in all directions. Quite beautiful. Beautiful wolfenite. Looks like a crystal, like a, almost like it's cut the shape of a, it could go into a gemstone from the, oh, it's wolfenite, it's red. Uh, it's beautiful from the red cloud mine, which is in California. Um, there is also one in Arizona. Also from Australia is this vivinite, vivinite. And uh, it is a gray stone with some blue that looks like an azurite. There's bitrudal, uh, bitroidal hematite from I. Howell Mind. Vandenite on quartz from Morocco. This stuff has these beautiful little um, spear kind of shaped uh, silverish gray bubbles with yellow bubbles and orange bubbles scattered throughout. Barite in fluorite from another mine in, in Morocco is quite unusual. That looks kind of almost cube-shaped, kind of looks like a lapis color. Not real shiny, but very, very unique. Barite from Peru. Now this one looks like a, a squarish uh, flat, and it is translucent. Crystals, very beautiful. Um, cobaltion calcite from Morocco. This is a beautiful purple, uh, translucent uh, violet on the top, and then purple as you get dark uh, deeper down. Then there's red and pink chalcedony geode from Morocco, which has a druzy, large druzy globules formations inside. Uh, calcite from from the cast of aragonite is from Morocco. It's uh, white crystals on one side and then uh, sandy sandstone looking white formations on the other side. Rhodochrosite with fluorite in Peru. These are little jimmy somewhat square to rectangle. They almost look like crystals um, like they're not cubed straight edges, they're rounded edges, uh, but it is a beautiful rhodochrosite in pink colors, and then clear crystals around it. Then azurite on barite from Morocco. This is a stunning one if you're an azurite fan to, to look at. Um, the azurite has formed in these kind of a long, um, elongated, clusters with specks of what looks like azurite all over it, but the blue that's also sprinkled in there looks like it could be what our next subject is about, and that is smithsonite. So I don't know if it is or not, but it looks like it is. So you might want to check that out. If you want to see some really cool mineral specimens, go check that out. Rock and Jim tells us about smithsonite. Um, and the Smithsonian and Smithson. I'm going to tell you all about this article, but if you go to Rock, the letter N and Jim, you can check out this uh, 
article by uh, Steve Voynick is the one who tells us about it. Um, They tell us about this stone and how it really was originally believed to be, it's a beautiful blue, like a baby blue. And here in Idaho, sometimes this will form in the gold mines out here. It has a bitrudal crystal habit, and that's, that's how it almost always comes out. It is a zinc carbonite, very favored among mineral collectors because of the pleasing colors. And uh, the better the, uh, the robin eggs blue and the better the, um, the bitrudal formations are, the better, right? Uh, it's also found from uh, New Mexico and other areas around the world. But originally, it was found, uh, it was believed to be a zinc oxide, but later, a chemist named James Smithson, he demonstrated that calamine was, cal, uh, mine was actually a mix of three zinc minerals, oxide, carbonite, and silica. So the stone eventually became named Smithsonite in his honor because this one had a zinc carbonite component was formerly named zincanite. So they tell you a little bit about him. Of course, he's the one that opened up the Smithsonian Institute where many fine minerals can be found to this day. And there's some history here about that if you want to find it. Um, but it is a beautiful gemstone. Check it out. With that, guys, I'm going to wish you a good night. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And remember, rock hounds don't die. They petrify.